I'm Ken Canera, and this is Beyond Consulting. Today, we welcome Justin Nasiri, a former McKinsey consultant and CEO of Executive Presence, and also host of the podcast Beyond the Uniform with over 350 episodes to date. But before we welcome Justin, I just want to remind everyone that we are sponsored by ECA Partners, a specialized project staffing and executive search firm focused on former consultants and private equity. Justin, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you having me, Ken. You bet. So, Justin, I want to talk about your podcast. I want to talk about executive presence. But like we do with most guests, maybe we could just start at the beginning in terms of your career and then dive into executive presence. Yeah, I'll give you the abbreviated version. We can always double click if you're interested. But I actually started out in undergrad at the Naval Academy. And after that, I spent five years on nuclear submarines. So not the typical start of a career but got some good stories out of it, made some really good lifelong friends. And when I got out after five years, I had no idea what I was going to do for a living. So I went to business school at Stanford, and it was literally the first time I'd heard the words private equity and entrepreneurship and a lot of these things that just most people probably know about. While I was there, I interned in New York with McKenzie, accepted a full-time offer, and then on the way to starting that, had an idea for a company and ended up pursuing that instead. And that led to about 10 years of entrepreneurship, mostly failed. I did a venture-backed startup funded by Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt, called Storybox, which was not really the success I wanted it to be. Started a podcast, Beyond the Uniform, which we can talk about, which I'm just in the process of selling. Started a company called Captivate.ai, which was sold, which was great outcome, but not life-changing. And on the way, stumbled on executive presence, which is where I'm focused right now. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But when I started executive presence, it was like a match on gasoline. It just took off immediately. And I told a longtime advisor, like, man, if I had experienced product market fit like this a decade ago, I would have thrown in the towel on every venture I've started after the first year because I associated entrepreneurship with pushing a boulder uphill, which it can often be, but that's not what it has to be. And I've kind of, I'm really grateful for the time I've had executive presence because I've seen that when you have some wind in your sail, everything is easier. And I'm also grateful for it because I'm realizing that a lot of what I've learned through honestly 10 years of failure is paying off. I'm much faster at learning and I'm much faster at applying things at my new company. And a lot of those lessons were learned through just really awful, horrendous mistakes in the last decade. Well, I love that you're open and talking about mistakes. And I always thought that like you, entrepreneurship was supposed to be pushing a boulder uphill. But let's talk about the wind behind your sail and executive presence first. What is it? Who do you work with? Tell us all about it. Yeah. Well, the premise of what we do is we provide CEOs of high growth companies with a fully managed social media presence. Right now, that means LinkedIn, but we're starting to expand into other channels. And where it came from was, like most people, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. And I saw that there were people who were getting millions of views every single day for their writing. And I thought as an entrepreneur, I thought, wow, if I had a megaphone that gave me access to millions of people every day, that's going to make hiring easier and fundraising easier and sales easier and everything easier. And I started to realize another thing, which was these people didn't necessarily have the best experience or depth of expertise. 
They had invested significant time in building that megaphone. And as I scratched my head and looked at, you know, my friends from Stanford Business School, many of who have built billion dollar companies from scratch, I thought, wow, there's someone who has superior expertise and superior depth of experience, but they don't have the time to play the social media game. So I set out with LinkedIn with executive presence to say, could we marry those two things? Could we go to extremely successful people who are leading an industry? Can we find a way to extract their wisdom, extract their knowledge in an authentic way and in a time efficient way and have them be more active on social media? And if we could do that, it's good for our client because they get this megaphone. It's good for executive presence because we make a lot of money. But anyone reading a news feed on social media, it's going to be good for them, too, because they're going to start hearing from the people where we really should be listening to them because they've done unbelievable things and they've got a lot to share about what's made them so successful. To set it in context, I started on December 16th, 2021. So we just celebrated at the time of this recording our one year anniversary. But in the first five months, we went from zero to a million in annual recurring revenue with about $2,000 spent on sales and marketing. And for context for myself, the first time I had done that was with $2 million of venture funding and a team of eight people, and it took about two years. And so for me, it was this light bulb moment where I'm like, I just did this with, at that point, it was only contractors. I did it with very little effort, and it made me realize there's a lot here and have been building out the company since then. That's incredible. And I know I've had the pleasure of paying attention to your content over what feels like the past year or so on LinkedIn. Could you just give us an example for those maybe that haven't seen it in terms of kind of like what it is and the types of maybe benefit or results that your clients are seeing? Yeah. My thesis is that LinkedIn, and I think this is true for social media, if you are building something organically, i.e. you're not cheating, you're not taking human growth hormone to grow unnaturally quickly on social media, which I view as a short-term hack that doesn't work for the long-term. If you're growing an audience, it's about two things. It's about great content and second of all, published consistently. And so in terms of great content, what that means to me is it needs to be educational and it needs to be generous. So a lot of times when we work with a CEO, they want to, you know, saber rattle. They want a chest beat. They want to talk about their company. That's great, but most people don't care about their company. But if they talk about concrete lessons that have helped them lead a team or hire people or build a company, or if they educate people about their industry, if they're adding value, that's something that people gravitate towards. And I like to think of this as this Venn diagram where one circle is what can the CEO speak about with authority, with credibility, but the other circle is what does their audience care about? What do they want to know? What do they want to learn? And that intersection is really what we want to focus on when it comes to high quality content. So to make this more concrete, for me, this first part of high quality content means I want to speak directly to CEOs who are trying to become a thought leader, who are trying to be top of mind, who have incredible networks, and they're trying to keep that network alive. And so I'll speak directly about how they can use social media to grow that audience, to grow that influence, the benefits of it, 
You know, we work with hundreds of CEOs at this point. We've seen patterns in their beliefs and in their mistakes. And so we can share those. So I'm speaking directly to my ideal client and adding value for free, ideally 90% of the time. And then about 10% of the time, I might be promoting my company more overtly, or 10% of the time, I might be talking about myself as a person to humanize myself. And those posts tend to attract the most engagement when I can open up about a failure in college, or when I open up about what I've learned in running or with my kids, whatever else. And that's generally the formula we use for our clients, about 80% adding value, about 10% promoting their company, and about 10% just talking about themselves. And side note, that last piece is usually the hardest mindset shift for our CEO clients to get them comfortable speaking about themselves. But one quick anecdote there, I work with the CEOs of several unicorns, billion dollar companies, and one of them has been very successful on LinkedIn prior to working together. And our very first post got literally 10 times more success than any post he had done before. And it happened to be a post about him growing up in poverty in India, this crazy story that no one on his team knew about, no one in his audience knew about. And it took a lot of massaging to get him comfortable with that. But when he did, there was this immediate connection of people wanting to move towards him, wanting to engage with him because they understood more about him as a person. So that's the first part, high quality content. I'll, I'll talk about the second part and then I'll take a breath. But the first part is high quality content. The second lever for success on LinkedIn is all about consistency. And most people we work with, when they think about being consistent on LinkedIn, that means three posts a year, four posts a year. That means they post something that says, I'm so honored that Forbes featured me. I'm so humbled to have been on this podcast. It's just like that. that's the two trends. And that's great. They get a lot of visibility or they announce funding. They announce some huge milestone. And then it's crickets for months. In our view, consistency means posting at least two to three times per week ideally posting five times per week, which is a huge mindset shift. Invariably, our clients start by saying, I don't want to talk that much. I don't, you know, I don't want to be viewed as just someone who won't shut up. It's a huge shift we have to make for them. But we've done a lot of research on this. And for the people who are most influential on LinkedIn, the common thread is they post 5.2 times per week without exception. Oftentimes they're posting 10 times per week, which is, you know, a lot of work, but it's partly the algorithm. Not everyone sees your posts, so you have to post with somewhat volume, but it's really relationship building. You have to be relentless talking about whatever you're educating your audience on. And so, you know, last thing I'll say on that is that to be consistent, to be high quality and content. It is very hard for our typical client to do that because they're building an empire. That's why executive presence exists. We've built a process that takes about 80 minutes per month of our client's time. And in return, we're posting every single day and doing everything they need to build that megaphone. Wow, that was interesting. And you stole the question that I just had on the tip of my tongue, which is how do you actually get that content out of folks at that speed and cadence? No one likes to write. Very few people do. Or, or if you do like to write, we're probably not a good fit for you. <laughs> we like to do conversations just like we're having right now. And part of this insight came out of the podcasting work that I did, where I found that if you just sit down with great people and just have curiosity, you end up pulling out some incredible insights. 
And so the bedrock of what we do is interview based. And one side note on that, you know, one of our theses is that to be successful on LinkedIn, good content is right as you talk. And so we interview our clients to get them talking. We ask questions that are in line with the content pillars that we've put up for them. We just remain curious and we know what we're going to be doing with the end product. We know the writing we're going to do. So we know we need a good ending. And so we might ask questions to fill in some details, but essentially they're just showing up and answering questions just like we're doing right now. We transcribe that interview And now what we have is we have a written document with their unique insights, their voice, their phrasing, their words, their diction, all of these things that are authentic to them. And what we do with our writers is we turn that into LinkedIn posts. There's, you know, a lot of massaging that needs to do that. There's, you know, certainly formulas we can talk about about what makes for a good post. So we're kind of filling in some pieces and taking from different pieces. But for the most part, we're just taking what they've told us in that interview and we're turning that into great content. They get a chance to review it. And then we do all the posting on their behalf and we kind of do all the different levers to grow. But at the end of the day, what they're doing is just showing up and talking as if it's a podcast interview. The one other piece that we'll do with them is it's far more art than science, but we've tried to bring in science wherever possible. So every month we're sending them a report and we're saying, look, this is now what we know about your audience. This is the posts that are working. So on your next interview, we're going to dig into this topic because it turns out that that's something that really resonates with your audience. And last thing I'll say on that is that's really what we're trying to do is help them find their voice. Because a lot of times our clients, they go to a conference twice a year and give a talk. They go on a podcast three times a year. They're sharing their knowledge, but they don't really know what's working. We get a daily experiment every single day, 365 days a year. So we're able to come to our clients and say, you know what your swim lane is? You got to talk about resilience because when you talk about resilience, your audience lights up. So when you go to your next conference, you need to lean into that or whatever it is that we find out. We can help them with their tone and kind of figuring out what their brand is. And so even if LinkedIn is just the byproduct, they're walking away with a lot of insight that can apply to everything else they're doing, whether it's talking to Forbes magazine or speaking at a conference, they can incorporate this knowledge to know what their hits are so they can play the hits for their audience. And are you seeing the results? I guess, tell me a little bit about how you're seeing the results show up. I know you just talked about a bit in terms of the insight and maybe the tone or the topics, but tell us a little bit about some of the results that you're seeing. Yeah, I'll talk quantitative and then qualitative. So the quantitative things that we pay attention to the most are total views per month. How many times are their posts viewed? Followers, and we measure that in month over month follower growth. We look at the average views that their post gets, and we look at their profile visits, how many people are checking them out. Those are kind of our four primary metrics. We see 100% universally at this point, in the first 30 days, almost all of those will go up by, views will go up by over 1,000%, likes will go up by over 1,000%, followers will go up by about 5%. So in the first 30 days, you see this explosive growth. And then after that, in month two onwards, it dips back down less than the first month, but much higher than prior to starting with us. And it generally just continues to steadily grow month over month after that. 
we can dig into specific numbers, but we're generally aiming to get at least one and a half percent month over month follower growth. And we have other benchmarks for views and likes and all of those other things. So that's the quantitative side. That's the one that we can go through on a monthly basis with our clients and point towards the concrete results. The qualitative side is harder to measure as any content marketer will say, but it's really where the magic is. So we've had clients who have literally ascribed a $2 million investment to one of our posts. They posted about what they were doing. They got on an investor's radar. That investor wrote them a check. So that's like a dream outcome. We've had clients who have gotten on ABC News because wow. a reporter saw their post and said, hey, come on and talk about this. We have people who hire from this. We have like all sorts of success stories. One of our clients who's an investor, he says, look, the goal of my existence is to convince CEOs that I can add value. He said, I show up now in four out of five meetings, the CEO I'm meeting with to potentially invest in is talking about my content. Like, I really like what you're saying about sales. I really like your thoughts on this. So they already know me and trust me. That's my goal as an investor. So the unique goal is different for each person. But in general, I want to be clear, we position this very much as a brand awareness play, as a thought leadership play. We're not trying to do this for customer acquisition. Anytime someone says, oh, I want to make sure that I hire someone within six months because of this, we don't want to work with them. We're trying to work with people who are at a further level where this is around awareness. This is about building a legacy. They know that their potential employees are doing their research on them as a CEO. They want to see them as a thought leader. So we want want someone who's really in this for the long haul because we don't want to do any hacks. We're not using pods. We're not using a lot of these tricks that a lot of people are using right now to get thousands and thousands of likes. For us, that's building up a meaningless audience. We want to build up a very small, concentrated audience. If our client is in AI, we want them to have anyone in their audience who's interested in AI and relevant. So we really want to be precise and who we're speaking to and how we're speaking to them rather than just inflating the numbers so they see, you know, they have a million followers now, but that following doesn't do anything for them. That's incredible. And I'm guessing that this is very applicable, whether it's a B2B or B2C business. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting because we have a lot of information about the size of companies that we work with. Industry, we're pretty much in every conceivable industry. It doesn't really seem like industry makes a difference or the B2B to B2C distinction. If they would benefit from an active and engaged audience, this works and it will work in their industry. I used to give the example of like McDonald's. I'm like, maybe it doesn't matter because you're not hiring people on LinkedIn, but you are for the corporate team and people eat McDonald's. I just feel like it kind of works for any type of organization. That's awesome. Justin, I want to hear about kind of how this whole thing started. And specifically, we talked a little bit about this before we hit record, but I think a lot of our audience is very interested in kind of how they can make the shift to becoming an entrepreneur. And it sounds like right now you kind of went into this with this kind of solopreneur mindset. And obviously now you have the greatest problem of all, which is how do I pour more fuel on the fire? But could you talk to us a little bit how the idea came about and the questions maybe you're thinking about right now for the business? Yeah. 
man, the idea kind of, you know, in retrospect, I can see elements of every company I've done. You know, Storybox was around user-generated content and Captivate was around taking podcasts and repurposing them into social media content. And my own podcast, Beyond the Uniform, obviously was about interviewing people. So in retrospect, I see the threads of storytelling and interviewing and social media content. Like the tapestry makes sense in the rear view mirror, but certainly it wasn't like a two by two matrix exercise. It was more an insight. And specifically when I was running Captivate, I just started to see that we were producing a lot of social media content, which worked well when the company was pushing it out. But when the CEO posted, it just did way better. And I started to realize like, you know what? They're the face and the voice of the brand. They need to be the spokesperson. And that's going to be a lot better than a faceless organization putting out content. We want to interact with people. So that was kind of like one of the inciting incidents. And the second part of what you were asking about, it's been a journey. You know, I feel like the first five months I was doing almost everything myself and that got tedious quickly. I was interviewing and writing and scheduling and listeners have probably heard a lot about zone of genius. Like I wasn't operating in my zone of genius. I was doing a lot of work that I was not enjoying over time. What I was enjoying was making a lot of money after not really experiencing that a lot in entrepreneurship. And so I feel like around five months was the baby step that I took of saying, okay, I need some help here. And so I started bringing on contractors to help with some of the pieces that didn't need to be me. And I had had some battle scars from hiring and firing and laying off. I had had a lot of wounds from just thinking like, I don't want to ever do that again. It was so traumatic. And so that baby step was really helpful for me because as I started to work with contractors I really liked... I started to realize like, this is not actually that bad if you're working with people you really like. If you get the right people, having a team is great because I get to do more of what I want to do. They get to do more of what they want to do and we can have a bigger impact. So that was like the first baby step. And as that was going on and I started to like people, I started to bring them on part-time or full-time, whatever they were available. And it then got to the next step, which does in retrospect feel like this distinct decision tree which is, is this going to be just kind of me and a handful of people and me just kind of bankrolling this and having it be either lifestyle or having it just be a solopreneur thing? Or will this be a company? Am I going to try and build something? And I will say that I have probably on a weekly basis looked back and wondered if I made the right decision, much less so now, but I feel like there's been a, a, a few weeks in particular, where I was like, oh man, if I was you know making this money just solo. This would be great. Just kind of own my schedule and all of these advantages of <laughs> solopreneurship. But I'll tell you what has made me convinced that I'm headed in the right direction is I feel like a lot of what motivates me at this stage in my life is having an impact on other people. And I know there's an alternate world where I do that as a solopreneur. Maybe it's with closer relationships with clients or as a philanthropist or something like that. The form that it takes on right now that's really deeply me for me is making people's lives better because they work with me. And I feel like all of us spend a lot of time at work. It has a big impact on our identity and our fulfillment. And so I'm really, you know, my intention is to try to build a company in the way that I view is right. And so, for example, we instituted salary transparency. 
And it was an idea I had over a weekend and we implemented that Monday. There was no spreadsheet. There was no determination of this being a good financial decision. It was made realizing it might make our life more difficult down the road. But it was as simple as saying, you know what? A lot of crappy things happen because people don't know what other people are paid. And it leads to this income inequality. And it leads to people being treated differently based on gender or race or other things. It can be abused. And so let's just nip that in the bud. And everyone on the team knows what I make. They know what each other make. When we hire someone, they know what they make. And my hope is, one, it just takes the mystery out of it. Two, it shows where we're investing as a company. And three, it, for their own professional development, it lets them know what the market rewards. When we start bringing on big salespeople who are making a lot of money, it's good information for them to know for themselves and their kids. Like, wow, salespeople make a lot of money. That's really good to know. So let's be really transparent on it. And that's just one example. But I feel like that has become my why behind what I'm building is the bigger we are, the larger our team. And I have very particular ideas of how to treat people. I'll tell you one other one is I think the world would be a better place if we paid people generously, what we believe is generously and they believe is generously. And so I've tried to lead with that of like, okay, it doesn't really make financial sense for us as a company, but I'm going to pay every single person on my team. I would say without exception right now, I am paying them more than they ever expected to be paid. And the reason there is if I win, they win, everyone wins. And this is not a success if I walk away with tens of millions of dollars and everyone made a bare minimum salary. Like I want to build something where every step of the way people are succeeding financially. So to bring this back, you know, that was my decision for taking the off ramp and saying, okay, I don't think I want to be a venture backed company, but I do aspire to be a 200, 300, 400 person company. I have big aspirations there. And I don't look down on whatsoever the version of myself in an alternate universe that is doing this with a couple of virtual assistants and just making a lot of money and not working much. But for me, I found a lot of fulfillment of just sensing like, okay, we can build a company the right way. One other tidbit, we do one and a half percent of our revenue, we donate. The framework I've come up with is we have to donate monthly and it has to be done publicly. And so every single month on LinkedIn, I post, I call it the organization. We give money. It's not a lot, you know, a couple thousand bucks. But I tell my team, you know, one day we're going to be writing $50,000 check, checks every month to organizations. Like let's start small with right habits. And the one real last thing I'll say is I'm also very open to the possibility that this never becomes something that's, you know, giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars to charity. But if I'm doing this publicly, maybe there's some other CEO out there who's way more successful, who sees it and incorporates it, and they make up billion dollars down the road. That's great. It's just about trying to create the world we want to live in. And part of that's just trying to transparently set an example of good or bad. This is what we're trying to do to build a company that we can really be proud of. That's awesome. And thanks for sharing a lot of your philosophies. I'm finding myself actually energized just by listening to you here. So that's really awesome. 
I want to talk about, and, and by the way, Justin, this is this is how I originally found out about you. But for our listeners, we have a podcast called Beyond Consulting, right? And so a couple weeks into my little adventure, Justin, I was looking up my own podcast and I was like, wait, there's a podcast called Beyond the Uniform. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I even wrote Justin a note because I was like, oh my gosh. And he's a former McKinsey consultant. I was like, and the first thing I need to tell this guy is I swear I didn't copy his idea, but I just thought it was such a cool format. And, you know, my wife and I are both extremely patriotic. She's an immigrant and like, you know, we both bleed red, white, and blue. And like, so I just, I love the format of your podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about what Beyond the Uniform is and how you got started? And and I, I have so many other questions about the podcast. Yeah, I'll start with the origin story because I think it's so true to just the way that my brain works and the way that some entrepreneurs work, not all of them. But I was a couple of years out of business school and I was down in San Diego with one of my wife's best friends. And it just turned out that her husband was in the Marines and he had arranged a surprise birthday party for her. And probably a quarter of the room was Marines. And so at that point in my life, I was you know a couple of years out of the military. It wasn't a huge part of my identity. It wasn't a huge part of my friends group. But we were catching up. And you know I just noticed that they were, you know we would say in the military, and you might have to bleep this out, but bitching and moaning. They were bitching and moaning about, they were <laughs> thinking about getting out of the military and they had no idea what they were going to do afterwards. And it reminded me of how much I felt that and how much everyone I worked with felt that. And for me, I went to Stanford and paid, I don't know, $150,000 in two years of my life to figure out what I wanted to do. And that doesn't seem like the most optimal way for everyone to do it. So it just planted the seed in my head of like, oh man, you don't get a lot of transparency when you're in the military into what you'll do after the military. And there's always going to be an after the military. It could be 30 years or three years. Everyone's getting out. So it was just noodling in my mind. And I, I remember I was in the Portland airport in a connection and I was walking and I called my friend because I had the idea because I was listening to Tim Ferriss a lot at the time. And I thought, now here is a scalable solution. Here's something that someone like me who's got an hour to spare a week can try to start to chip away at a problem. I don't have to have the answers. I don't have to do the research. I just need to find great people and ask them great questions. So what I said is, okay, I'm going to reach out. And I'm just going to talk to veterans. You know, they, they say in the military, you can go and do anything when you leave the military. Let's go see what anything looks like. Let me go talk to all the different crazy career paths I never knew about in the military. And my very first interview was a McKinsey consultant. He was a Navy guy. He went into consulting and I asked him about it. And I just said, look, let's just talk about who you are, what you do, how you got there and advice for others seeking to do the same. And that was generally the format we did for now. We're up to actually 463 episodes, I think. Oh, wow. It's just talking to people. And it's, you know, everything from this former CEO of Pepsi to UFC fighters, ESPN photographers. And my approach was like, I don't have a dog in the fight. Like, I'm not a recruiter. I don't care if you get out and do X, Y, or Z. I want you to know what's out there. And I don't want you to underestimate what it takes to get there. Like the CEO of Pepsi was a grueling journey to get there. It wasn't like he got out and he got that job. So let's show you that you can do anything, but let's create a realistic picture of what it looks like, why you might like it, why you might hate it, what one path was to getting there. And 463 episodes later, we've canvassed a lot of different, not only career paths, but 
different journeys to a similar career path. You know, someone gets out and gets a lucky break. Someone gets out and has a career change. Like they end up at the same spot. It's helpful to hear that. So it's been fulfilling for me. Obviously, you know, I don't think I would have had executive presence without it. Second of all, as someone who interviews a lot of our clients still, I've got, you know, 500 plus interviews under my belt. So I'm pretty good at it. But third of all, it's just, as you can probably attest, it's so energizing to meet people and learn from them. And there's just so many benefits to this. So I don't recommend podcasting as a revenue generating activity for most people, but as a creative endeavor, as a personal branding endeavor, and as a networking endeavor, uh, highly recommend it. And a quick side note, I made the mistake, a rookie mistake on a podcast of drinking one of these Waterloo carbonated waters right before hopping on. So apologies for my inscrupulous belches periodically. That's the, due to the Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and actually, it's funny you should mention just the podcast and the energy you get from it. Because when I started this, my original intention, if I'm being totally honest, and listeners pay attention, I did have commercial goals. At the end of it, what I realized is, oh my gosh, this is just something I really enjoy. And it's something that like, I actually handed the the podcast over, Justin, so you're actually, I, I actually don't do the interviews anymore. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, I really wanted to do it with you because I, I was really looking forward to our episode. But um, I handed it over to someone else at my company that now kind of runs it just because of time. But like the one thing that I've realized is like how much I'm sitting here going like, oh man, I really miss this because the biggest aha for me is like how much I get out of it in terms of kind of like learning from these different leaders and everything like that. Okay. So two questions that immediately came to my mind as you were talking through that is Tim, you mentioned Tim Ferriss's book and in Tim's book, he talks about you have the ability to get in front of anybody, right? And he uses like an example that I think he gave some class at Princeton, if I recall correctly. You've had some really impressive guests on your show. I think Jocko is one of them. Tell us a little bit about some of the other kind of famous guests that you've had and how you've gotten in front of them. Oh, man. Coach K, that was because someone volunteer on my team, Steve Bain, reached out and made that happen. Tim Kennedy's a UFC fighter. Liz Carmouche is a UFC fighter. We've had a couple Discovery Channel reality show stars, CEO of Pepsi, Steve Reinemann, chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. We've had U.S. ambassador to, I want to say Iraq, but it's not Iraq, Jordan. We've had, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Jocko was a personal highlight because I love his books. I'm trying to think of other ones, but some of them were referrals. I feel like the one thing with podcasts is that you score a big win and that's either a referral to someone, some other big fish or it's a sign of credibility. And so when we started to punch up the food chain, we would just drop these things of like, hey, this is a podcast that's featured all of those names that I just listed off. And generally that increases trust and they say, okay, I'll do it. It does help immensely in my case that my experience with the military community is they are very giving. And so when it's like, hey, this is to help out other veterans, almost always are like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm in, sign me up. Like it's just kind of humbling to see how willing they are to share. But the one thing I'll tell to anyone listening who is doing a podcast or aspires to do one, I would say in 463 interviews, and this might be unique to my audience, but I don't think it is. I think I've maybe had two people ask what our listens were. 
like for all they knew, it could be two people listening to this podcast, but they showed up, right? So they had no idea how many people were listening. And I just say that, that like, I do still believe that, you know, you ask someone for a sales meeting or you ask someone for a mentorship or a coffee chat, you'll probably get a no. But if you ask them to be on a podcast, they're much more likely to say yes. And it's the same thing. You're getting knowledge from them. You're learning from them. But what I like about it is it's also scalable. You're learning from them, but hundreds of people are going to hear from the same stuff and learn from them as well. So I don't know if that fully answered your question, but a lot of our interviews came from referrals. Some came from outreach. I imagine this is true for you as well. I get a lot of requests every single week to be on the show. And it's just very much a side project. It's hard for me to pursue those. But I tend to take the ones that just spark my own curiosity because 400 and something interviews in, you tend to get, you kind of heard a lot of stories and you want to hear something just really personally compelling. It definitely answered my question and also just a theory and a belief of mine that like if you try hard enough, you can really get in front of almost anybody, right? What would you say are two or three big learnings that you've had since doing Beyond the Uniform? And and I promise you can use this content for executive presence. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I, I actually plan to. I'll tell you one thing that's directly related to executive presence, but it's hyper-specific. Then I'll share a couple other thoughts. But the first one is, I think in the number of interviews that I've done, I kind of came up with this until a week ago. I never really wrote it down, but came up with my own personal philosophy for interviewing. And it's what I plan to teach all our subsequent hires at, at executive presence. And, you know, I kind of came up with four things that mattered when interviewing someone. And one is presence. I personally believe that we can all kind of tell when someone's checked out. And, you know, with me interviewing a lot of people, I'm tempted sometimes to check my email or LinkedIn or whatever else. I really feel like that is a palpable change in the digital atmosphere that someone can really tell, like, this person isn't listening to me. And I think that impacts their ability to go deep internally and come up with the best answers. So presence is a big one. Of, I, I try to do a good job of turning off my phone, turning off Slack, like just really let me give this person my full attention. And then the second one is creating a container. I believe that the tighter container we create, the deeper we can go together. And so a lot of that plays into you know minimizing those windows, like creating a space where I'm trying to minimize my own movement. I'm trying to minimize anything that's going to detract them, again, from that process of going internally. A third one that I found is, and this is not really true for podcasts, but it's definitely true for the type of interviews that I do with executive presence. And I position it as I want to go towards reflection over self-expression. And what I found with our clients at, at executive presence is I'll be talking to them and what they'll say will bring up my own story. And on a podcast, I would go that route of like, oh, man, when you said that, it makes me realize, oh, I made this mistake with this employee and it cost me so much money. What an idiot I was. This is what I learned. And that's helpful for the audience because they've got kind of two data points along a similar theme. And it kind of helps with the rapport. But I really found that the work we do, it takes them out of their inner spiral. It takes them out of them mining their inner mountain. But if instead I can reflect back to them, it almost always has them drop in deeper. So reflection, as I experience, is like just kind of recapturing what they said. Like, oh, when you said that, what I heard was like, you really believe that someone has to do X, Y, and Z. I think that's really interesting. And like sometimes, honestly, they forgot that they said that. Like, oh, yeah, and this, and they'll go deeper. And so it, I just have this belief that the self-expression pulls them out and that the reflection allows them to go deeper. And then the fourth one, I think the fourth one is, how did I put this? Because I did this in a post recently. I'll just call it breath for now. 
I've had, I think, 15 CEOs at this point break down in tears in our interviews, not because I insulted them and hopefully nothing I said, but because in my view, they're really sharing something that's deeply meaningful. And I think that that's what I want to hear. I think that's what people want to hear on social media. And so it's never the people I thought, you know, one of them was like a professional athlete and what it's just like very sudden and surprising. But in each of those cases, you know, what my protocol is, is to literally focus on breathing deeper and focus on just being still and just giving them space to experience it. And my natural tendency is to try to make them feel better or try to bring levity in, which is really dishonoring their process. Instead, I just give them a ton of space to explore that without judgment and just kind of just giving them as much leash as they need as they as they go inwards. So that's a very, very specific thing I've learned across the years of doing the podcast. I think things that are a little bit broader are, I think, curiosity. I kind of wish everyone on the planet did podcasting because, you know, as people can see from you as a host, like you're a very curious person. It like teaches us to be curious and ask questions. So I think I learned to be more curious through podcasting. It's just amazing. Like I like the quote, success leaves clues. And I think that one of the reasons I get so energized doing these interviews is I think I uncovered that I've been pretty cocky throughout my life. And when I see people who are successful, I just chalk it up as they were lucky or entitled or they knew someone. And that's true part of the time. But I would say the vast majority of people that I've interviewed that I at least view as successful I leave the interview and I'm like, there is no doubt why that person succeeded. And it's not the same, like everyone has their own style or their own flavor or their own reason they were successful. But as I start to dig into what they do, you just hear like the thousands of tiny things they were doing behind the scenes that led to that success. So it's just, I think that it's brought some humility for me. It's brought curiosity about what made them successful. But I think it's almost built a little bit of respect for me of anyone who's built, you know, in my view, built something worthwhile. It's never an accident. It's like, you know, you build a company that's 100 people or 1,000 people or whatever. It's not the lottery ticket. It's because you're doing the right thing more often than the wrong thing. And that was something that I learned from our clients. He said, you know, he's like, my motto with my team is we got to be 51% correct. If we're 51% correct, we'll succeed. And I'm like, that's a great way of putting it. Like, I don't have to get 100% right because I'm making a ton of mistakes right now. But if I can be just more right than I am wrong in blackjack, you can beat the house 51%, right? If you're right that amount of time. So those are a couple of things that come to mind. And I'm now feeling self-conscious because that was a really long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I'm going to break your rule number three and just talk about it for a second. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm going super meta on you, but this one reflection over self-expression, again, I'm breaking the rule right now, but it's something that I had to learn because I watched folks like Joe Rogan. He can do it, but like I had to learn the hard way. Like Ken, you can't really do that. It really does kind of take you out of things, but I learned the hard way. So I've never heard it so succinctly said though. So Thank you. I do appreciate that. And again, I know I'm breaking, I'm breaking the rule. <laughs> I actually think it's great to do self-expression on podcasts. It's more of like, if it's an interview subject, I think it could apply both times, but I think self-expression might work great on a podcast though. The fifth thing that you didn't list, and I had a question for you is on authenticity. Mm. So something that I observed from listening to a few of your episodes, something I've observed right today, and in the content that Executive Presence puts out there is authenticity. And maybe this is a good kind of closing point, Justin, but how do you maintain that and think about that when you're thinking about scaling your business? 
You know, I feel like for most things I do, and this might be more of a liability than an asset, it is kind of driven more by gut feel than by strict analysis. And I think that just natural essence or disposition, I think that authenticity has always, for whatever reason, been a really important value of mine. It's part of my thesis for executive presence that authenticity sells. Like the more authentically we can represent our clients, the more people will be magnetized towards them. But I also think it just makes things simple. You know, something I don't do a great job at, but I'm trying to do better is being really direct. And we were, we were talking about that before we started recording. And I've told our team, and I, I need to do better at this, but I want to be direct in my feedback and doing it publicly when we're doing team meetings. Because I believe that if I have something to say to person A, there's probably a couple of people on my team who would benefit from that same advice. So it's kind of a scalable way for me to give feedback. But I also feel like most of us actually sit up straighter when we get feedback. Not that I do it this way, but it is kind of like that, the slap in the face where, you know, I've had times in my life where someone calls me out. It's like a scalpel. It's like, hey, dude, this is something you're doing wrong. It doesn't make me dislike them. It actually makes me like more alive and like, oh, I feel good that that person respects me enough that they're not just talking about me behind my back. They're like telling me something straight. And so I feel like that's part of the authenticity of like, let me be straight with you. And I, I feel like it holds me accountable to not saying different things to different people, which I have a tendency to do. And it's like, okay, if I'm doing this and it's being recorded or if it's going to be seen by everyone I really can't talk out of two sides of my mouth. It's going to become so apparent. Like I have to be the same everywhere. And it's something I think about a lot for what I'm planning for next year for executive presence is, you know, we've done team meetings. We record all of them. We've put many of them on YouTube, put three clips so far on YouTube talking about salary transparency, all these things. I just feel like it's the epitome of authenticity where, especially for people I'm going to hire, they have no clue what it's like to work with me. Like they can hear me interviewing them and I'm buttoned up, right? Like everyone says the same stuff in an interview of being inclusive or whatever it is. But if I'm going to put out their curated content that is from our actual team meetings, it's like, look, you want to know what it's like to work here. Eventually, you know, go look at the 50 video clips and you're going to see exactly how we interact. And I'm not trying to convince people, like if that's not for you, I'd rather you know that upfront both for you and for them. I don't want to sell people on anything. But if I'm authentic, if I'm real, most people are going to be turned off on it. The people who are attracted to it are the people I want to work with, the people I want to work with as clients, as employees. So it just seems like a lot simpler. And just to make this clear, you know, I feel like most of my life I've been a shapeshifter. Most of my life I've been a chameleon where it's kind of like I've got a sixth sense of what the person I'm with wants to be around and I can become that person. You know, I have a really unique skill in that. Authenticity for me, it's like really fighting against the grain of like, I actually don't want to be that sort of person. I want to be exactly who I am, repulsive or attractive. I want to be that person. So I just share that to say like, this is, you know, a lot of this is not natural. It's not something I do well. You know, one of our team values is direct and I'm not direct. And so it's like a lot of this is aspirational, but it's something I want to be authentic as well of like, okay, let me show my team what it's like for me to be direct and fall on my face. And then the next week, let me publicly apologize and say, hey, I was kind of an asshole and I didn't mean to be. I did that recently with our team on Slack where I just kind of realized I was like 
going on fumes with our little four week old daughter. And I was just, you know, on Slack, but it doesn't matter. It's the same. Like I was just snapping at people. And at the end of the day, I sent a note to everyone. I'm like, I'm really sorry. This is the way I've been showing up. This is why it's not an excuse, but you guys deserve better. It's like, okay, great. Let's just show, I don't have to model perfection. I need to model someone who's striving to be better, 1% better than the day before. And I think if we have a company culture like that, that'll get us somewhere. If we're all getting 1% better every single day, end of the year, it's going to be a completely different company. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. And I love that approach and that philosophy. For those of us that, uh, including myself, that want to learn more about Executive Presence and your podcast, where can they find it, Justin? The podcast is at beyondtheuniform.org. The um, Executive Presence is at executivepresence.io. Feel free to reach out to me, Justin at executivepresence.io. Probably the best channel right now is obviously LinkedIn. I'm trying to post every single day of the week. And I will say, you know, definitely gives me empathy for our clients because when I put a post out and it falls flat, that stings. It sucks to put a lot of myself into something and not have it go well. But I'm really just as much as I'm able to in this moment, I'm really pouring everything that I am into those posts to share what I think is most important. And so if you want to get to know me at a distance, LinkedIn is a great way to do it because I try to put out the best I can do every single morning at 6.32 Mountain Standard Time. And I think you learn quite a lot about people about, you know, what they talk about. Justin's being quite humble. His content is really, really great. And it's accomplished exactly what it set out to do, which is pretty cool to be able to observe it. Thank well, thanks so much, Justin, for joining us. For those of you listening for the first time, make sure to subscribe so you get future updates on our podcast. We're on Spotify, Apple. And then if you want to find transcripts, you can go to beyondconsulting.info. And lastly, if you want to get in touch with me or anybody else at ECA Partners, it's going to be eca-partners.com. Until next week, thank you so much.